everyone. Welcome to session 13 in our study of Esther. Today we're going to be in Esther chapter 8 verses 3 through 17. So I'm sure you've all heard the phrase before, there's more to the story, meaning that there's more going on than what's being conveyed and what seems like the end of the story really isn't. Well, I recently read about a ninth grader who was on the basketball team at Notre Dame Prep School. Well, he was attempting to create a group text for his teammates. Well, he accidentally typed in one of the numbers wrong and accidentally added the name Sean Murphy Bunting, cornerback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, to the team's group chat. So later, Bunting asked the group, did you mean to add me to this group? Well, eventually, Bunting revealed his identity to the boys, and he sent them a picture of himself in the Buccaneers locker room. Bunting also started a video chat with the shocked boys, passing his phone to teammates Leonard Fournette, Rob Gronkowski, and Tom Brady. And that's often what happens in life, isn't it? I mean, just when we think we know how our story's going to go, how it's going to turn out, we come to the realization that there's more to it. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage. Mordecai and Esther have been saved, and the evil instigator Haman is dead. But that's not the end. There's more to this story. So let's read Esther chapter 8, verses 3 through 17 in the CSB. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot that he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther, and she got up and stood before the king. She said, If it pleases the king, and I have found favor with him, if the matter seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. On the twenty-third day of the third month, that is, the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army who was hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. 
A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples, so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence, clothed in royal blue and white, with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province and in every city where the king's command and edict reached, gladness and joy took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. In many of the ethnic, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews, because fear of the Jews had overcome them. So, as you remember from last week, Haman had been hanged on the gallows for enacting the law that would kill Esther and all of the Jewish people. And the king gave Esther Haman's estate, and the king's signet ring, which Haman once had, was given to Mordecai, signifying that Mordecai was now in Haman's position in the kingdom. Mordecai was now the second most powerful person in the kingdom. So the queen and the prime minister of the Persian Empire were both Jews. What can God not do? But it all began with the courage of Esther and Mordecai to trust in the Lord. I mean, it all started with faith. God didn't just place these blessings in their laps. It began with one small step of faith after another. If we desire to see God do great and miraculous wonders in our lives, then we have to begin at the beginning, one step of faith day after day, until those steps amount to a grand journey of faith in which we see the Lord working in our lives in waves we never thought possible. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-four says, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Now in verse 3, it says that Esther was weeping. So why would Esther be weeping? I mean, she's just received the vast wealth of Haman, and she and Mordecai are now safe. But for Esther, her own salvation was not the most important thing to her. Her biggest concern was for the salvation of her people. Because she says in verse 6, how can I bear to see the disaster of my people? You see, even though Esther and Mordecai were safe, the law that Haman devised to destroy the Jews, that was still in effect. Because any law that was authorized by the king, it was irrevocable. It could not be rescinded. And there were many in the Persian Empire who hated Jewish people, and they would like to see them destroyed. Throughout history, God's people have always had enemies. Satan will always attempt to stir up strife and enmity against the people of God. John fifteen twenty says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And in 1 Peter 4.12, it tells us not to be surprised by difficulty, as if something unusual were happening to us. So as God's people, we should be ready and remain strong in the Lord through prayer and Bible reading. So even though Haman was dead, the consequences of his evil actions, they remained. Many people today are experiencing the adverse effects of actions of evil people who are long dead, and also the positive consequences of those faithful people who are long dead. 
So Esther felt responsible for her people. So she bowed before the king in humility and submission and begged for the lives of her people. Warren Wiersbe says, we need more people like Esther, whose burden for condemned people was greater than any other thing in her life. Is that true for us? I mean, do we actually feel burdened for those who are without salvation in our circles? Or do we leave the task of witnessing to the pastors and missionaries of the world? I mean, we must consider the fact that the people we encounter every day, they may never darken the door of a church. You and I may be the only Christian influence they see. We're placed in our positions in life for a reason. It's not only for our own growth and maturity in the faith, but it's also to influence those around us with the gospel message. Esther interceded before the king to save her people. Again, we see echoes of the gospel here. Jesus interceded for us when he went to the cross and died on our behalf for our sins so that we might receive salvation. And you and I, we are also given an opportunity to intercede at the throne of grace and pray for our friends and family who need salvation. I mean, how much time do we really spend praying for others compared to the amount of time that we spend praying for ourselves? I mean, think about how encouraging it is to hear the words, I'm praying for you. Well, how often do we say those words to someone else? One commentator says, One concerned person devoted to prayer can make a great difference in this world, for prayer is the key that releases the power of God. So in verses 5 through 8, Esther solved what appeared to be an unsolvable problem. I mean, the original law could not be repealed or amended. So Esther suggested writing a new law that would counteract the original one. You see, when we're walking with God, there are no unsolvable problems. Sometimes God provides a way around a problem. Sometimes he provides a way over the problem. And other times, he will provide a way through the problem. So if God has removed a problem for us in the past and we can't understand why he's not removing our problem this time, well, perhaps it's because he's going to provide a way through it. Because remember, God's goal for us is our sanctification, becoming stronger and more mature in our faith, becoming more like Jesus. So whatever's going to bring us into a closer relationship with him, that's what he's going to do. So if removing our problem will make us more like Jesus, then that's what he's going to do. But if going through our problem brings us closer to him, then that's what he will also do. In this case, God did not remove the law to destroy the Jews, but he gave Esther the wisdom to go around it. So in verse 8, the king gave Esther the authority to write a new law that could include whatever she saw fit on behalf of the Jews. So Esther engaged the help of Mordecai, and he wrote another law that said that on the day that they were set to be destroyed, the Jews had the right to defend themselves against any people or army that was hostile toward them. They were given the authority to assemble and defend themselves against anyone who tried to do them harm on the same day that they were set to be annihilated. Now, it sounds ridiculous that the king of the empire could not take back his own law. I mean, they had to go through all this trouble. But remember, the king was seen as a god, and gods can do no wrong. Therefore, their word was law. Even if it was spoken in haste, 
or like in this case, it was spoken during a moment of thoughtlessness, it still could not be taken back. And this in some ways mirrors our own reality. I mean, our words spoken in haste or in anger or thoughtlessness are also difficult to take back. The effects of our words remain long after they're spoken. Therefore, we must be mindful of what we say. Because as James 3 cautions us, the tongue can be a restless evil, full of poison. So the new law was written on the 23rd day of the third month. And the original law was set to be carried out on the 13th day of the 12th month. So the Jews had roughly nine months to build up their defenses. Now, Mordecai wasted no time getting this law written and issued to every province in the kingdom. It was written in every language spoken throughout the empire, and it was carried to each province using the king's swiftest sources. Mordecai was motivated to get the good news out because it meant salvation for his people. We also have good news to share. We hold within us the greatest, most important news ever given to humankind, that Jesus Christ saves sinners. What are we doing with this good news? Are we as motivated to share it with others? Are we praying for those who are taking the good news of salvation to the nations? Because in verse 14, it says the couriers carried the new law, spurred on or urged on by the king's command. The king commanded them to go and spread the good news. Well, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations and to teach them everything that he's commanded us. Now, in verse 15, it says that the king gave Mordecai royal clothing and a gold crown, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Haman and Mordecai had the same wealth, position, and honor. Yet Haman achieved it through manipulation and deceit, Mordecai through courage and sacrifice. And in the end, Haman lost it all and died in humiliation and abject failure. But now, the Jews in every province rejoiced. There was gladness, joy, and honor, a celebration, and a holiday. The Jewish people knew that they had been saved. A few months ago, they were grief-stricken, wearing sackcloth and ashes and weeping because they thought their destruction was a certainty. But then Esther and Mordecai called them together for a time of prayer and fasting, and God delivered them. Now, while Esther and Mordecai were certainly instrumental in the Jews' deliverance, I think the fact that the people themselves turned to the Lord also played a part in their deliverance, which resulted in joy and gladness. It's a wonderful thing when someone else's actions save us from difficulty, but when we also take part in it, I think it makes the rejoicing that much sweeter, our bond with the Lord that much stronger. And I think another reason why they were filled with gladness and honor is because they believed the law to be true. They had faith in this law of salvation. I mean, what if the Jewish people chose not to believe Mordecai's law? Well, it wouldn't have changed the law. I mean, the law was still true, but if they didn't believe in it, then their lives wouldn't have changed. I mean, they still would have remained defeated and powerless. They wouldn't have taken up arms to defend themselves when the attackers came. But it was their faith that this law was true that prompted their actions and their response. 
God's word is true, whether people choose to believe it or not. But it is our faith, our belief that God's word is true, that changes us and motivates us to want to follow it. And it is our faith in God's word that brings joy and gladness. Evangelist Billy Sunday once said, If you have no joy in your religion, then there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. Do you have a leak in your Christianity? Do you find it difficult sometimes to be joyful? Well, remember, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit lives within us, then we have access to joy. So what prevents us from attaining it? Well, maybe it's because we're so focused on our current circumstances that those quiet little moments of happiness and joy pass by unseen. Or perhaps we're so confident that we know what's going to make us happy that we're only looking for those things. So when God presents an opportunity for happiness that's outside of what we think it should be, we ignore it. Or we can't see it because we're so close-minded as to what we think will bring us happiness. May we be open to the fact that God knows what will bring us joy. And it may actually be different than what we think. Matthew Henry wisely pointed out that if Jews had not been threatened and in distress, then they wouldn't have had occasion for this extraordinary joy. And isn't that true? It's often through pain and difficulty that joy, gladness, and peace become so impactful, so meaningful, so palpable. The Jewish people exhibited joy because they had been saved from death. Well, so have we. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do we exhibit the same joy for our salvation? Now, in verse 17, it says that many of the ethnic groups of the land profess to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had overcome them. So there are various interpretations for what it means that the fear of the Jews had overcome them. One interpretation is that people pretended to be Jews and sided with them because they had gained the respect and favor of the king. Another interpretation is that people turned away from their pagan religions and became Jewish converts. One commentator said the book of Esther opened with the Jews keeping a very low profile, so much so that Esther would not even reveal her nationality. But now it's an honor being Jewish, and they're so happy with what God has done that they were attracting others to their faith. Even pagan Gentiles could see that God was caring for his people in a remarkable way. You see, Haman wanted to destroy all the Jews, but here God expanded them. It appeared that the Gentiles had become aware of the power and sovereignty of the God of the Jews and wisely surrendered to his lordship. I think a healthy dose of fear isn't always a bad thing. I mean, fear can prevent us from making dangerous and foolish decisions. The fear of the Jews, it seems in this case, caused many to realize the foolishness of worshiping pagan gods and the wisdom in following the God of the Jews, the one true God. But see, I believe it was a fear. I believe it was the fear of seeing the mighty sovereignty of God as well as seeing his merciful deliverance that brought about the Gentile conversions. I think people can sometimes have a one-sided view of God. They're either too focused on the fear and only see God as mean, vindictive, and detached from humanity, 
or they're too focused on his goodness. So they see God as nothing more than the man upstairs who's sitting in heaven, doling out blessings to people who are good and deserving enough. But neither of these depictions are accurate, and they may actually hinder many from coming to faith. Psalm 31, 19 says, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 128, 1 says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Psalm 85, 9 says, His salvation is near to those who fear him. So God is both. He is good and kind and generous, and he is mighty and powerful and awe-inspiring. The God who spoke the world into existence can also speak it into extinction. The world and everything in it belongs to him, and he can do whatever he wills. Therefore, we should fear him. Now, by that, I don't mean to pull away from him and cower and be afraid of him, but have reverent awe of him deep abiding respect and admiration of him. And yet this same God who spoke the world into existence became flesh and dwelt among us. That he would leave everything he had in heaven to come and live on earth and then to take upon himself the sins of all humankind. Every evil that humans have ever done and will ever do, he willingly paid for with his life. There is no greater love than that. And when we begin to understand these aspects of the Lord, our love for him and fear of him will grow, and then blessings will soon follow. So the challenge as we close is to ask ourselves, does our love for our Heavenly Father motivate us to share the good news of salvation and to pray for those who are spreading the good news around the world? I mean, when we get promoted in our jobs or engaged to be married or our children learn to walk, we don't hesitate to spread the news. Well, may we be just as inclined to share the good news of the gospel. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.